Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, we're going to find out how alien civilizations could use quantum signals to communicate across interstellar distances. But first, we explore how projectile fusion could provide us with a clean source of low-carbon energy. The nuclear fusion of hydrogen is the process that powers the sun, and it was first achieved in an earthbound lab way back in the 1930s. Since then, scientists and engineers have been trying to develop ways of harnessing fusion to create a clean and abundant source of energy. But success has so far been elusive, and practical fusion energy remains an important technological challenge facing humankind. Much of this development effort has focused on large national or international facilities, such as ITER in France, which will soon create fusion within a hot plasma of hydrogen. However, there are many other ways to get hydrogen nuclei close enough together to fuse, and these are being explored by a growing number of small companies, such as the UK's First Light Fusion. I'm joined down the line from Oxford by the company's co-founder and CEO, Nick Hawker, to talk about the firm's approach to fusion. Hi, Nick. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. So, Nick, First Light Fusion is taking a new approach to fusion energy, and it's called projectile fusion. Can you describe the approach that you're taking? Sure, absolutely. So, yeah, we call it projectile fusion, and we fire a high-velocity projectile at uh, what we call the target. And uh, the target is an intricately designed and engineered object uh, which contains the fusion fuel. And the job of the target is to focus the energy of the projectile into that fuel. Uh, and the, the goal is to make uh, a hot, dense plasma uh, which is hot enough and dense enough to fuse very rapidly and, and release a pulse of energy. And if I may, perhaps I'll take a step back from that and say that projectile fusion is its a new method for inertial fusion, which is one of the two main branches of uh, fusion energy research. Uh, the mainstream of inertial fusion proposes to use a large laser, and they have the same thing. They have something which they call the target, and the laser energy is incident on the target, and um, it drives the fuel capsule to implode at very high velocity, makes very high temperature and density. So what we have, it's a new method for inertial fusion, and it, it, we use the projectile approach instead of the laser for a lot of reasons, one very good one uh, being that it's a lot cheaper. Right. Okay. And, and my understanding is that, um, that the key to success in this is, is being very clever about how you design the, uh, the, the target. C can you say a bit about that? Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the target is the key technology. We kind of joke projectile fusion is kind of a rubbish name because it makes it sound like it's all about the projectile, but it's not. It's it, the real key enabling thing is the target design. And, um, I mean, I've already said that the projectile system is cheap, and it, and it is. Um, but if we go back and sort of contrast to the laser uh, approach used by the mainstream, um, lasers have one major advantage, which is um, they deliver their energy to the target extremely quickly. Actually, 
faster than you would you would need. You're going to have higher power lasers than you would need for inertial fusion. They're not the highest power lasers in the world. They're the highest energy lasers. It's the energy which costs a lot of money, but you can double that energy quickly. The, the thing with projectile fusion is we can have tons and tons of energy. So our piece of kit that we've recently had a breakthrough result on, um, it cost us 1.1 million to build, and it actually has the same amount of energy as the largest inertial fusion experiment in the world, the National Ignition Facility, which costs $4 billion. So it's a lot cheaper. The problem, though, is it delivers that energy much more slowly to the target. If you just took that energy and delivered it to the fuel at that same rate, it would do nothing. Basically, you'd be trying to heat the fuel up, but the nature doesn't want to, to let you get things to be that hot. So there's always processes which bleed the energy away. Um, Principally, heat conduction, like, you know, hot thing touches a cold thing, hot thing cools down. And um, radiation, so uh, when um, uh, hot plasma um, uh, gives off um, uh, optical light and x-rays, that's a form of it losing energy. Um, so the key thing about our targets is that they compensate for this um, uh, weakness of the projectile approach, which is that the power delivered is low. So the, the, the most novel aspect of everything that we do is what we call the amplifier. So all our targets are in two parts. There's the amplifier and then there's the fuel capsule. And the, the pressure delivered to the amplifier by the projectile is obviously, I mean, including the name, it is amplified before it is delivered to the fuel. So if we take um, um, the um, uh, pressures that we're talking about with our current experiment, we're getting about 100 gigapascals of pressure on impact from the projectile, but we're able to boost that into more like 1,200 gigapascals of pressure delivered to the fuel. And that's that's the magic piece which makes the whole thing work. Right. And and, and you mentioned that um, that, that the company's um, reached a, a milestone uh, recently. C can you explain um, what you've done and, and how you did it? Yeah, uh, so we have um, demonstrated fusion for the first time with this uh, with this projectile approach. So our history as a company, we started with simulation tools. So my, my PhD was doing simulations for a new, new process for fusion. Um, and uh, the great thing about simulation tools is they're just such an engine for invention. You, know, you can iterate so quickly because you, know, you just tweak the design, you rerun it, and you get the answers you know, a few hours later. Um, but the, the thing is you should believe your simulation tools um, only as far as you have experimental data for them. So we have been working for, for quite some time to get to this milestone of actually showing fusion um, with the projectile approach, with the amplifier technology, which I just described. And as I said, it's never been done this way before. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a really big proof of concept moment for us. And, and how do you confirm um, that you have fusion? Are, are you looking at uh, the, the reaction products um, that are produced, uh, you know, using radiation detectors, or or is uh, is there another way to confirm it? No, that, that's that's it. So the, the signature is um, neutrons and neutron emission. Um, so um, uh, the neutrons carry four fifths of the energy of, of fusion, and they have a specific. They themselves individually have a specific energy. Um, so what we are what we are doing is we are um, uh, you know, counting neutron detection events around the experiment. 
um, and we are uh, measuring the energy of the neutrons by measuring how long it takes them to go from one detector to the next detector, which is called a time of flight measurement. So you're, mm -hmm. you are measuring their velocity and you know the mass because it's a neutron, so then you're measuring their energy. Um, so actually, we first showed fusion back in um, November last year, um, and we had a lot of careful work to do to be absolutely sure of what we were seeing. Um, history of uh, fusion is littered with people who are not so uh, careful. <laughs> Especially neutron detection, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. If we look at our if we look at our rate of detection compared to you know, background on the detectors, then this is an eight sigma uh, measurement. So it's a very significant measurement that we've, uh, that we've made. And and so others um, have have seen fusion in the lab, you know, as, as I mentioned in the intro, um, I think it was Mark Oliphant, the uh, Australian physicist, first saw it in the 1930s. But the, the, big, um, the big challenge is to, is, is to make enough fusion um, that you can get some energy out of it um, without, I suppose, your, your system melting down immediately because of, of all that released energy. How, how do you go from uh, detecting fusion to creating a system where you can, you can get some energy out and use it um, you know, to generate electricity or uh, to heat a building? Yeah, so um, the, the next phase for us is to build a new uh, experiment, a bigger one, uh, which will be the gain uh, demonstrator. And there's, there's two things principally we have to do uh, in order to go from where we are today to, to demonstrating energy gain. Um, the first is we need a higher velocity projectile. Um, so those, those pressure numbers which I, I talked about uh, before, you know, if someone listening to this is a, an inertial fusion physicist, they'll know that those are too low. Uh, so we need to get up to about 10 times those pressures to be getting into um, the space for um, for gain. Um, and then um, the other thing we need to do is we need to increase the starting density of the fuel. So we have to go to higher pressure fuel or we have to go to um, cryogenic liquid fuel at the, at the starting point. Um, everything else we're trying to do in the, in the design of the gain demonstrator, we're, we're trying to keep within the bounds of target performance that we've already um, demonstrated, or um, literature, high confidence literature uh, with robust designs. Um, so I really mean it when I say that we're working on a new method for inertial fusion. It's, it's a new method around the outside for making the exact same state of matter in the final configuration. Um, so it's, it's about the projectile and the amplifier to realize exactly the same thing that the mainstream of inertial fusion is, um, uh, is, is talking about. And, and I was looking at your at your website um, recently, you know, so, sort of reading up on on how the technology works. And, and I was intrigued by um, that something that you say there. You, I suppose your your vision for um, a system that that generates energy using projectile fusion would would resemble uh, an internal combustion engine, where you I suppose you've got a cycle of. Almost like piston. <laughs> well, the piston isn't going in and out; it's just going in and then exploding. And is yeah. that how it would work? It would be a a, a series of of uh, projectiles that go in. Yeah. So inertial fusion is always a pulsed process. That's why I say it's like an internal combustion engine. So it's not actually there's no piston. Just a like, there's no. It's just an analogy. Um, but it, it's just one of these kind of conceptual things that I'm always asked about and always getting questions about. So it's it's really important to understand. Any inertial fusion is a pulsed process, and the, the total power that you get is the energy 
you know, released per event times by the frequency that you do it at. Um, actually, that gives you great design flexibility because there's loads of different ways that you can get the same power output. You know, you have, uh, yeah, have flexibility there. So, um, yeah, in terms of how it would work in a power plant, um, you would load in one projectile, connect it to the machine at the top. Um, you would drop in one target uh, into a, a big reaction chamber um, underneath. And when the target got to the right position in the reaction chamber, you fire the projectile straight down on top. And both the target and the projectile would be completely vaporized by the, the energy released. Um, but then all of that material then would go into the um, uh, reaction chamber below and to this. We have a, a liquid first wall concept. And yeah, the energy heats up the liquid first wall and that's the coolant. And it, and so you go from, we go from stored electrical energy and then uh, the capacitor bank discharges and launches the projectile. We have projectile kinetic energy. Uh, that hits the target. And for a very brief moment, you have fuel internal energy at the right temperature and density. And then you get this big pulse of fusion, yeah, energy released. And then at the end, you have heat in that, um, in that liquid coolant. And that's how you, that's how you extract, um, uh, extract power. Um, and for those who are interested in the business as well as the um, science, uh, this is uh, the core part of our business model is um, supplying the targets, and which are a consumable item. Um, so you can pick your cliche, you know, it's the ultimate um, uh, printer cartridge or it's the ultimate razor blade, whatever you want. <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting analogy. You, you, you touched on business. What, it seems to me that, that, that there is a, a, a great interest out there amongst um, investors in, you know, looking at, at alternative um, ways of, of doing fusion on, on a smaller scale. Did, did you find, you know, as you set up the company that um, it, it, it was easy to talk to investors? They, they, they sort of knew something about fusion and, and, you know, maybe where they wanted to, um, to, to invest. Well, it's in, that's interesting. And the way you kind of posed the question there is interesting because you asked about, you know, when we set up the company. So we, we actually set up the company in 2011. And uh, back then, there was not many fusion startups and they had not raised very much money. Um, how did we find it? Well, the network of, of uh, you know, entities that invested in First Light to start with were all connected with the university and were all connected with commercializing technology coming out from the university. And that group, uh, a lot of their differentiation is that they actually understand science. And so that was, that was quite a, you know, that was a good conversation. Um, <clears throat> now, um, there is a huge interest in, uh, in private fusion. Um, and we, we, uh, we get, uh, more investors coming to us than we ever have. Um, and uh, as ever, when you know interest widens out, there are those who are deep specialists and uh, and those who are those who are not right. So it's it is a challenge to communicate such a complex technology um, to that sort of um, uh, that lay audience. And and what about um, you know the people that work for you? I would imagine physicists, um, engineers. Um, do you, do do you find that um, that people in those professions are 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 interested in working for? Um, you know, a, a small company like yours that's trying to develop a sort of an extraordinary technology. Is it, do, do you find it easy to, to attract people 
to the company? Um, well, I mean, getting getting the, the you know top people and is is a real challenge. So I wouldn't say I'm not going to gloss over it by saying that it's easy. But um, fusion is definitely an inspiring mission, um, and it's an inspiring and very difficult problem. And um, uh, the, the 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 best, hardest working, smartest people tend to be motivated simply by really hard problems a lot of the time. Um, so you know we we do we do very well uh, with recruiting. I, I tell you something which I have noticed in recent years is when we're recruiting for graduate positions, um, and it, this has really changed. But like everyone who is applying now for graduate level positions, they are they are all on a mission about climate change. Every single one of them it is a it's a major it's a major thing. I think for this. Um, uh, you know, generation coming through. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, I hope uh, I hope it all goes well with with the next phase of of development. And uh, thanks for coming on the podcast, Nick. My pleasure. Thanks very much. On the Physics World website, you can read a research update with the fantastic headline: "Aliens could use quantum signals to communicate with Earth." After reading that, I couldn't resist asking my colleague Margaret Harris, who commissioned and edited this article, to come on the podcast and talk about this research. Hi, Margaret. Hi, Hamish. So, Margaret, I'm guessing it's probably pretty difficult to communicate here on Earth with quantum signals. Why are, are some researchers interested in interstellar communications using quantum technologies? Well, first, you're absolutely right that it is quite difficult to use quantum signal to communicate here on Earth. The current record distance for transmitting information via entangled particles is is um is 33 kilometers if you do it via standard telecoms fiber, and that record was reported just last week by physicists at Saarland University and the LMU in Munich. By the way, uh, the distance is a little bit longer if you're using specialized equipment, and if you only want to distribute quantum keys rather than using entangled particles. Uh, the record there is, actually, I don't know the absolute figure, but it's over a thousand kilometers. But with interstellar distances, we're talking about tens or even hundreds of light years, not tens or hundreds of kilometers. And you'd think it would, that would be much harder, but it actually isn't. And the reason is that while space is very, very big, it's also very, very empty. There's a lot of emptiness out in space. And that's great for quantum communication, because empty implies that there's very little out there that could disturb the entangled state of this, this quantum particle, this photon in this case. Very little that could cause it to decohere, as the term is, which means that the state would lose its quantum nature. And so I know that astronomers, um, you know, they have problems with light that comes from very long distances because it, it interacts with sort of magnetic fields um, in, in the universe. What, 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 does, uh, what would a quantum signal interact with as it travels, you know, let's say a few hundred light years? What, what would cause it to decohere? Well, the most basic example would be if the entangled photon got close enough to something to actually interact with it. This could be anything from a stray electron or a cloud of dust on up to a star or a black hole. So in some sense, it is the same sort of problem that astronomers run into with, you know, the problems of light passing through dust. However, in a previous analysis, the physicists who did this latest work, uh, Arjun Barrera and Jaime Calderon Figueroa of the University of Edinburgh, UK, they found that the mean free path of photons in, in, in interstellar space is on the order of one million parsecs, which is larger than our Milky Way galaxy. 
And so that 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 means that in principle, um, we could use quantum communications to to communicate with with I suppose alien civilizations throughout the Milky Way. And the, the Milky Way is a huge place, isn't it, with lots and lots of stars. So um, it it's almost looking like a, a practical thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, and even if you consider making things a little bit more difficult, as the researchers did, and consider what would happen to a photon that's moving through a region of space with an above-average amount of stuff in it, such as our own solar system, at certain wavelengths, specifically X-ray wavelengths, the mean free path is actually larger than the observable universe, so you know, you're really not going to have a problem there with, with uh, causing decoherence in the quantum signal. So are there any other things that could disrupt a quantum signal in interstellar space? Well, gravity is a possibility, and this is, may, may sound somewhat surprising to our listeners, because of course photons have no mass, so gravity in the classical sense doesn't affect them. But we live in a world with general relativity, and in that world, I suppose I should actually say this world, uh, there's a phenomenon known as Wigner rotation that couples spin and momentum of particles, and that actually causes the state of a moving particle to change as it passes through a curved space-time. Um, and this isn't actually quite the same thing as decoherence. Um, strictly speaking, Wigner rotation affects the fidelity of the quantum state, which is the ability of the receiver to process the state once they receive it. But just as with decoherence, the researchers calculated that a photon could travel a considerable portion of the Milky Way before this would become a problem. So it sounds like uh, scientists who are interested um, in this sort of thing uh, have decided that it is possible to send quantum signals across interstellar distances. But why would we or any other technologically advanced civilization that could be out there want to? Why would we want to use quantum signals when we could just, you know, sort of flash a light on and off to communicate? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the sort of SETI or search for extraterrestrial intelligence part of it. And the researchers suggest there's two possible reasons. One is that the quantum nature of the signal would actually be a sign that that signal comes from an intelligent source rather than some natural process. Although that is kind of assuming that there aren't natural processes that could also generate entangled quantum states, which is in fact an open question that researchers hope to explore in the future. Um, the other potential advantage is that quantum communication makes it possible to pack a lot of information into a signal especially if you use these higher dimensional entangled states. So uh, listeners have probably heard of qubits, so uh, entangled states with two possible superpositions. Uh, but there's also entangled qtrits and qvingits, that's 20, um, 20 higher dimensional states, and all their cousins um, rather than just qubits. So the only drawback of using um, quantum signals is that if an alien civilization were at this very moment sending out quantum signals in our directions, we wouldn't be able to detect their quantum nature because we're just not looking for that. And we aren't yet that sophisticated in being able to detect quantum states anyway, even down here on Earth. And I suppose if you had a, a really advanced civilization that, you know, for example, managed to spread itself out over a number of, of stars, that uh, they could use this as a as a secure way of of communicating with with um, with their bases, couldn't they? If they, if there was some sort of threat um, that they had to deal with. Yeah, I suppose so. That that's the the argument for quantum communication down here on Earth. But you know, do do remember that quantum light travels at the same speed as any other sort of light. So if you're trying to communicate across a uh, sort of multi light year civilization, you're still going to have to wait a whole year 
for those signals to, uh, to to reach you, quantum otherwise. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, I suppose it's a bit like, uh, um, you know, you hear you hear stories of, um, you know, from in history where I, th I think the classic story, if I'm not wrong, is that um, the, the Battle of New Orleans in the War of 1812 was actually fought after the war was over because yes. the information couldn't get from Washington <laughs> down to, to New Orleans in time to, uh, to stop the fighting. So I suppose these alien civilizations, whether they're using quantum signals or not, would still have, uh, have that same problem. Uh, that is, of course, unless they've mastered faster-than-light communication, which uh, would have to involve completely unknown physics, as far as we're concerned. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, to, to reading that story in the future. <laughs> uh, that'll be a good one. So am I. <laughs> and yeah, to, to, just to remind listeners, um, that story is called uh, Aliens Could Use Quantum Signals to Communicate with Earth, and it's up on the Physics World website, and that's written by Martin Borkamp, who is a freelance science writer based in the Netherlands. Is that right, Margaret? That's correct, yeah. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Margaret. Pleasure. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Nick Hawker and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester speaks with CMS Communications Officer Achintia Rao and particle physicist Christina Botta about their recollections of the discovery of the Higgs boson, which was made 10 years ago. Physics World